This episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by the American College of Physicians in celebration of National Internal Medicine Day on October 28th. ACP provides its 163,000 members with lifelong education, clinical support, practice resources, professional development, and advocacy resources. The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Hey, Paul, we're back. Uh, Stuart's not here. You, uh, Oliver is here, though, in his place. Oliver, of course, is your adorable black cat. Yes, full name Oliver Pecan Palford. And uh, this is the Curbsiders. To remind the audience, uh, we have a partnership with VCU Health, and there will be CME credit available for this episode for free. You can go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Paul, uh, can you tell the audience... What is it that we generally do on this show? And then maybe you could tell them about our wonderful guest. <laughs> well, thanks, Matt. What we what we generally do on this show is, well, how about I tell, tell the audience what we are instead? We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. And what we generally do on this show is we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As per usual, we have a fantastic guest. So the clinical pearls we bring to you are especially fantastic. Um, we have Dr. Dick Jardine, who's going to talk us through her approach to sinusitis. We had a great discussion about her approach to acute viral rhinosinusitis, bacterial rhinosinusitis, and then we segue beautifully and masterfully into chronic rhinosinusitis. So we cover all the all the sinusitis disease, um, or whatever the plural that would be. Shall I tell the audience a little bit about who our guest is, Matt? I think now is a great time. <laughs> Uh, so, Dr. Dink Jardine is a general otolaryngologist and serves as the Director of Professional Education and Designated Institutional Official at the Naval Medical Center Camp Lejeune, where she maintains her clinical practice. She is a commander in the U.S. Navy and holds faculty appointments as an assistant professor in the Departments of Surgery and of Pediatrics at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. She is passionate about medical education, especially procedural skills, and can often be found nerding out on teaching modalities and curriculum design. So without further ado, why don't we get to the nose? Do you have a pun for us, Matt? I don't. I feel like Stuart almost certainly would. And uh, we can all be glad that uh, <laughs> he has some sort of obligation this evening. <laughs> the views expressed in this podcast discussion are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Navy, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Okay. That's going to be a good one. Definitely going to be a good one. Dink, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. We're excited to have you. Tell the audience and and give the audience your one-liner and include some sort of hobby, something cool you're doing outside of medicine. Oh, goodness. I, I, I hope that I'm doing things cool out of medicine, but sometimes that's not true. So my one-liner, I'm an over 40. I'm not going to tell you exactly how old. Female GME nerd. <laughs> I'm a mom of three boys. I'm on my third professional career, and I have a habit of starting at least one new hobby per year, and we'll talk more about that when I talk about failures, too. Amazing. Uh, so many follow-up questions. Paul, <laughs> uh, I will let you go first. Yeah. No, I think I usually I ask about books, but I... Well, I, I don't, I can't read anymore. Um, so let me ask, so, and certainly you can tell me about a book that you like, but I want to hear about the careers first. So what were the first two careers before you've landed on this one? 
So, so my first career was as a nuclear propulsion officer, which meant that I managed the uh, nuclear power plant for aircraft carriers. Um, and I did that for a few years. And then I was a stay-at-home mom for three years. And then I went to medical school and had my medical career. So this is my third. So I just want to mention, off-air, we were talking about um, your technological capacity. And I want to go back to the first <laughs> So you were saying you tended to break computers. Um, and what was the first job again? I just want to make sure I was understanding things. So, so just to be clear, I uh-huh. oversaw the management. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you've ever been on um, any sort of military vessel, the uh, technology is not cutting edge. Um, so, you know... Yes, I can do computers, but I can't code computers, and that's okay. <laughs> okay, so anything less than the level of nuclear submarine, you feel a little bit less than comfortable with, is what I'm hearing here. <laughs> correct, correct. Although back in the day, it was only the the surface uh, ships, so I was actually only aircraft carriers. Okay. Submarines wasn't available when I was on there. They are now. Yeah, uh, I, I wonder what was more cha- what's been more challenging: the raising three boys, the nuclear engineering, or or being a physician. They, it's, it sounds like you're up for any challenge. <laughs> they they each have their own special challenges. That is a true statement. Yeah. Well, unlike Paul, I I do still try to read. Although, as as Paul has said many times, the list of books is just towering. But I do I do go back to this list when I'm when I'm selecting a new book. So anything that you th- found useful or just entertaining, uh, I'm all for escapism these days. So, what would you recommend? Uh, so I've recently come across a, a whole series, and I'll have to pull up the exact name, but it's a it's I have recently become interested in uh, crime fiction. And this is an older series that I just started, but apparently it's been around for like, I don't know, years and years and years. Um, but what's great about it is it's set in Canada and Quebec. And so there's there are all kinds of little nuances. So Still Life is the first one by Louise Penny. And there's a whole case series. So that's what I'm reading right now. Um, but I mean, I have a growing list of audible books that I just love and I pass on depending on what we're talking about. Awesome. We had a previous guest, uh, our Uncle Bob, who tells us that as internists, we should all be reading mystery because as an internist, it's our job to solve mysteries, which I I actually like to think of it that way. It makes the job seem more exciting than sometimes it really is when I'm just uh, refilling medications. (laughs) So... Uh, Paul, any other questions you want to ask? Or I know we have a, a huge amount of things to ask. So, well, since it was alluded to, I do want to hear about your favorite failure, um, and if you wouldn't mind recapping how what you learned sure. from it, that would be great. Yeah. So, so I alluded to it in my one-liner. I have this um, habit of finding a new hobby that I get super excited about. It averages about one per year. Um, and generally, I will just throw myself into it. I will buy all the equipment. I will lay down all of the, we're going to go do this training and everything else. And some of them I stick with. So I turned 40 and I decided to start doing kickboxing. That one I stuck with and I still do it. Um, a year and a half ago, I decided I wanted to do ice hockey. And after $500 worth of ice hockey equipment and a course, I discovered that I really don't like ice hockey because it hurts when you fall. Um, and so what I've what I've taken away from it is it's okay to go, I'm going to really get into this. And then when it doesn't work, I can tell people, you know what? It didn't work out for me. And I'm glad I had the experience. And when I first started doing these hobbies, I would be embarrassed by that. And now it's like, mm, I just sort of lean into the... I'll try it and see what happens. Um, but yeah, hockey was not my thing, at least not at the age of 45. 
I'm just imagining that there must have been a Pogs collection at some point in your life. Or, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are those sticks, Paul? That like people used to flip around at the beach and, and all oh, that. Like the, are those the devil sticks? <laughs> yeah, like devil sticks. Name? Yeah, sure. I'm just I'm just imagining all these past hobbies that you must have had, but. A, a closet full of hacky sacks. <laughs> there, yeah, there, yeah, there's a closet closet full of uh, mismatched, mismatched toys and discarded uh, paraphernalia. That is a true statement. Wow, just just amazing. ACP wants you to help celebrate National Internal Medicine Day on October 28th. Share your internal medicine pride by spreading your "I am proud" message all year long, and especially on National Internal Medicine Day. I am proud to be an internist because it is a genuine privilege and an honor to help guide my patients through a complicated health system, and to help them meet their own health goals. ACP provides easy, fun ways for you to celebrate at acponline.org forward slash NIMD. You can download posters and a timeline of internal medicine milestones to share in your workplace or online. You can update your social media profile picture to include a National Internal Medicine Day frame, or you can customize and create your own posts, share social media posts from ACP and other internists, or just like and comment on ACP posts. Flood the internet with internal medicine pride on October 28th. Recognize a colleague and spread the love for internal medicine. Be sure to tag at ACP internists and use the hashtags National Internal Medicine Day, hashtag I am proud, and hashtag I am essential. Visit acponline.org forward slash NIMD to jumpstart your celebration. Well, I think we should actually move on. Uh, let's let's get to the case, Paul. And did you, did you want to do the honors reading? I think we have some really fantastic names. I think we should really give credit to Beth Garbs Garbatelli for these, or are you willing to take credit for some of these, Paul? No, not none of them. Okay. <laughs> I, these are these are all Garbs originals. I thought you were going to so, say garbage, and I was going to say, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not not saying. Um, but let's let's start with our first case. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna start with Max Linus, um, solid name, twenty eight year old male. He's coming to us with a one week history of runny nose, and he's feeling pressure over his cheeks and forehead, and he's feeling this dull waxing and waning headache, and just generally feels kind of crappy. Um, he's been taking over the counter nasal sprays, though he's not quite sure which one he's been taking. He's been trying to relieve his symptoms, but none of them have been very helpful. He denies cough. He doesn't have any subjective fevers. He hasn't really measured his temperature at home doesn't have any other comorbidities that he's aware of. We take a look at him on exam, and he's got mildly inflamed nasal passages, but maybe he'll tell us what that looks like because I'm not entirely sure. Um, and then the posterior pharynx has clear mucus running down the back of it and no exudate on the tonsils. The rest of the exam is, is unremarkable, or at least benign. Um, so before we get into the case of poor Mr. Mr. Linus, um, that does not roll off the tongue, we always <laughs> like to start basically with definitions and sort of define our terms. So before we get going, you know, we're calling this a sinusitis episode, but there's also rhinitis and there's also rhinosinusitis. And I think that the papers that we've sort of read for background get a little bit wonky about it. Do you mind sort of talking us through the accepted terms and how we should be describing this this collection of conditions? Sure. So so I'll do my best. I will tell you, just as you alluded to in the papers, we sort of flip-flop some of the the terms and we use them interchangeably. The way I think about it is it's inflammation, right? So where is the inflammation? Um, and rhinosinusitis is probably the most accurate term for what we're generally describing. When people say I've got sinus problems, they're usually describing a rhinosinusitis because the mucosal lining of the nasal passageways and the sinuses don't really have like a hard border where it's like, okay, this one ends and this one begins. So the rhino part is the nasal passage. The sinus part is the sinuses. And if they're all inflamed, it's rhinosinusitis. It is absolutely possible to have just a rhinitis. Um, and so if you're not 
having any sort of significant sinus complaints. Uh, rhinitis is pretty, um, you know, that's very accurate. And we'll talk about it probably a little bit if we talk about allergic rhinitis. Um, sinusitis is probably not as accurate because it's not common to have just an isolated sinus inflammation, although it's possible. Um, and so that's how I sort of think about it. But rhinosinusitis is the accurate term. But again, as you've seen in all the papers, we sort of use them interchangeably. And I just want to make sure I'm understanding. This feels like an SAT question, but <laughs> most or almost all sinusitis has associated rhinitis, but you don't have to have sinus. You can have rhinitis without sinusitis is what I'm hearing. Is that close to that is That is that is pretty accurate. It's I mean, yes, that that is a... Uh, Somebody will find an example of something that is would it make sense? But those two, yeah, those two will get you pretty far. Because uh, but rhinosinusitis is, I mean, like we talk about chronic rhinosinusitis, CRS with or without polyps. CRS is the the term we use, and so mm-hmm. um, that's the more correct term. But yeah. again, there's not a hard barrier between the sinus and the nose, and so it seems like it'd be hard for. If you have something, yeah, the the sinuses or the, the nasal passages are more superficial and it's the first thing that microbes or irritants can encounter. So that's most likely going to be inflamed before it gets back into the sinuses is the way that I would think about it. So it, it makes sense that it would be, that's, that can happen by itself. Well, is there anything from the history or the presentation that uh, can can give you a sense of like, that you, that you really pay attention to and like for this, for example, this case of Mr. Linus, what, what stuck out to you that, that would help you make the diagnosis just from the history? So, so I spend a lot of time on history and part of it is because patients will come to you as they come to me with, I've got sinus, like that's what you get. And so you really have to ask more of the questions for this particular case. The fact that it is a, you know, week, less than 10 days, um, you know, a very distinct. I've got congestion. When you um, ask about it, I've got a runny nose. I kind of feel just this general malaise. Those are all very, to me, very telling of more of a viral acute episode, um, mostly from the timeline. Yeah. So the the physical exam here, they mentioned that he has inflamed nasal passages. Um, I don't know if it's too soon to go into this, but what sort of, if you're the primary care seeing this before they just, you know, refer to an ENT, uh, what what should they be doing on their physical exam? So what I love is when folks look in the nose and look in the nose like all the time so that you know normal versus abnormal. Um, For my purposes and when I'm teaching, um, you know, like primary care uh, residents who will rotate through, I have them use the otoscope, honestly, because the otoscope gives you a nice anterior rhinoscopy view. Um, In the world of COVID, you're nice and close, which is, you know, you have to take the appropriate precautions, but it gives you a nice view and it's lighted and you've got some magnification on it. Um, But a an inflamed nasal mucosa will usually be sort of this puffy reddish look. Um, we often talk about boggy turbinates. Um, boggy turbinates are a little bit more of a um, purpley blue, and that to me is much more of an allergic look to it. But red, inflamed, sometimes they almost look sweaty because they're irritated. Um, oftentimes, if it's uh, if it's a pretty in tense infection, you actually will have trouble passing the otoscope because it's just inflamed up to the point that it's touching the septum. Um, and so those are the things that I look for, for like an inflamed nasal lining. To do this, so to do this, the otoscope, uh, you put one of the ear speculum 
on there and exactly. you and you tell the patient to tilt their head back slightly and how far in to the nose are we inserting this ear speculum? I don't want to hurt anybody. So the thing that hurts, so when I when they come to me, I'm actually going to put a, you know, six-ish centimeter um, uh, camera in their nose. <laughs> and so, so you're not going to hurt them with, a, the, with the amount that you can fit with an otoscope. Um, what you want to do is you want to angle away from the septum because the septum is what hurts. Um, so, you know, angle out towards the turbinate. If you need to touch something, turbinates really are pretty insensate and you can touch a turbinate and, and get a pretty good view. Um, I will actually tip the nose up a little bit. And I, I know you can't see this on a podcast, but I'm literally pushing my nose up almost like making a pig nose um, because that helps you get the angle. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to look almost straight back and then slightly up because the other place that you really want to look is in that middle meatus. So um, on the lateral sidewall, you've got your inferior turbinate, above that your middle turbinate. And often you can see the middle turbinate just with an otoscopy. And if I can see in that middle meatus that there's purulence, that's going to be a very different picture for me than clear. Um, because that's where we start crossing the line between viral versus bacterial. Wow. That may be more information than you wanted. No, actually, no, I, right. I did not know that the turbinates were relatively insensate and that the sept, I should be veering away from the septum. This is all. Yeah, don't, no, touch the septum. <laughs> we used to, we used to say, ouchie says the septum, ouchie. <laughs> We, that's the level of, of, uh, that's the level you should be working with, uh, Paul and I tonight. (laughs) (laughs) What, so I I guess, and we'll, we'll obviously get into this, but you know, I feel like the initial question is always, is this viral versus a bacterial infection? Can you, in terms of sort of pointing towards viral etiology, sort of what about the rest of the patient? So like the, obviously the temptations kind of go right up the nose, but what, what about sort of mashing on their forehead or pushing on their cheekbones or looking in their eyeballs? Is there anything else that's particularly high yield or, or especially useful in the physical exam to sort of point you or swing you towards a viral infection versus bacterial? Well, so absolutely. Uh, an ocular exam will help you if you're, you know, viral, you'll often get the conjunctivitis, not always. Um, if you were going to have a complication of bacterial sinusitis, you absolutely want to do an ocular exam, but you're going to see that when you see them and things are puffed out. That's pretty obvious. That one's not subtle. Um, I don't do a lot of mashing on cheeks or foreheads because it doesn't um, it it doesn't help me much. Um, there are a lot of people that are tender, kind of no matter what you do. <laughs> um, so. Is it part of our exam? Sure. Does it make or break things for me? Not really. Um, Because for me, the story, the history, what their past um, either treatments have been is going to be a lot more helpful for me than, well, if I tap here, it hurts. I will tap on teeth, though. That is one place that I will tap to see if there's a dental um, etiology for it. And that one can be helpful because they'll go, oh, yeah, that really does hurt. And then you start looking at a dental etiology. Um, But again, for viral, it's almost more the story in that I see this clear rhinorrhea. So no transillumination? (laughs) You can transilluminate all you want. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Neither (laughs) do I. But you can. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. But I I do, I actually, rhinoscopy, I will say... uh, in primary care, I I never really did it in residency, but then in primary care, I must have seen someone do it, and and I just was like, I found it very useful. Like you said, it's you you gotta it's like JVP or listening to heart sounds. You just have to get a lot of normals under your belt before you can see abnormal or before or you see enough, and then you start to put things together. Yeah, I kind of tell people, you know, if they're coming in for anything else, look in their nose and look in their ears so you can see normal. I feel like it also. I'm biased. <laughs> 
I th- and I, maybe we're getting away from the point, but I feel like it also lets the patient feel like you know what you're doing, at least. Like, if you look up their nose, you're like, oh, I bet you can't even read out of that left-hand side. They're like, oh, my God, you're a wizard. Like, at least then you kind of <laughs> have moved the patient to sort of trust you more. And it's it's one of those things where someone comes up with a headache, palpate their head. Like, if you're not going to do anything else, at least pretend like you're paying attention to the area of interest. And I feel like the patient will feel like you're doing a, a super-duper exam, too. So just in terms of patient engagement, I like that. <laughs> And you can find things that you don't expect. And I think that's probably the bigger part for me is most sinus rhinitis, you know, obstruction is pretty benign, but every now and then somebody will look in the nose and go, I don't think that looks normal. And, and it's not. And so if you've looked in the nose and, you know, all of a sudden you see this fungating mass that gets people's attention because you've been looking at the nose the whole time. So that's why I like it. I wanted to know we, Paul's question was about, you know, viral versus bacterial, just from the history and in, in the exam. Uh, can you talk a, a little bit about that or, or how do you maybe even better, how do you talk to patients about that? And you can tell, talk out loud to us like you're talking to a patient. So the first thing I tell people is that I can't tell you right now if it's viral or bacterial because there is an early bacterial that's going to look just like a viral. There's also a transition component. And so a lot of times the story will be, I started with a sickness, you know, my, my kids were sick and I got this congestion and a runny nose and I, you know, felt really sick for three or four days and I was starting to get better and then I got worse. So that's a like double worsening sign. What we know from viral um, infections is that one, it's going to cause obstruction and so that can lead to bacterial overgrowth and uh, bacterial infection. Two, it breaks down the normal epithelial uh, processes and, you know, may make bacteria more likely to stick, but it just messes with the mucociliary clearance process. So you're setting your nose up to be a lovely Petri dish because it's got lots of warm snot in there that things love to grow in if it can't do its normal cleaning. And so do I know on day four that something's going to become a bacterial infection? No, I don't. Um, And part of that is why we want to treat things symptomatically and we want to sort of maximize their nasal function um, so that we, maybe we don't get it to the point of, of a bacterial infection. Um, the other thing I will tell patients is that early bacterial infections in an otherwise healthy person, watchful waiting is actually okay. Um, you know, we want to make sure that we're not missing a complication of it and they don't have any of the comorbidities, but bacterial infections will often clear on their own with, you know, what, what we sort of call a, a, a sinus, uh, a, 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 a good sinus regimen. And so, you know, using a sinus irrigation, you know, symptomatic treatment, all that kind of stuff. And so um, that's kind of the way I talk to them about it. Um, granted, usually by the time they're seeing me, they've probably already had sure. this conversation a right. couple of times. And so if I see mucopus, I'm going to put them on an antibiotic most of the time. Yeah. Probably all the time. <laughs> so a couple of follow-up questions. Is there a sinus toilet? And this is a question that just occurs to me now. Is that what you're going to say? Um, you know, like like the, like a pulmonary toilet, but for sinuses. Is that how you refer to it? Or is yeah, that... I I call it a a good sinus regimen. And so okay, yes, that's probably better. yes, yeah. Well, okay. I mean, you can call it's it a sinus gross, toilet. I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess so yeah. I have a standard that I'll have people on if they're sick, just to try to you know maximize the the outflow tracks, um, and it's. You know, nasal irrigation, just like everybody hates and loves all at once. Um, and we can talk through some tricks and tips if uh, people have had a hard time getting people to use it. Um, I'll usually put them on an oxymetazolam uh, regimen for like three days, twice a day, sort of scheduled, just to thin everything out. Um, and then nasal saline in between. 
And that sort of sinus toilet, sinus regimen seems to help a lot with folks just from a symptomatic standpoint. So I just want to recap that because that sounds important. So you're having them do sinus irrigation. You're having them do um, the one I can't pronounce, uh, oxymetazolam. Oxymetazolam. Okay, I did it. USA. Um, so you're having them do that no more than three days. Um, and then you're also having them do sort of saline rinses as well, it's in addition to the irrigation. And that's that's sort of your regimen for the acute presumed well, viral. So I, so I consider an irrigation and a, a rinse sort of the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Which kind of uh, delivery system do you like? Because they make the bottles where you can just, you know, plug one nostril and spray it up there. And then they make the pots where you insert the pot into your nose and then pour and then water comes out for the next hour, uh, which I've done. And uh, it does it does seem to work. So I think both are useful. Um, patients will have a preference. In general, I'm going to start somebody on a low pressure, high volume irrigation, like a bottle. Um, and the reasons for that is sort of twofold. One, I'm, I'm trying to get a lot of the snot and the goo out, and I'm trying to thin it out. Um, the downside of like the, the neti pot, which is sort of the classic tilt your head, is one, if you're acutely sick, a lot of times you, it really doesn't come out all that well. Um, yeah. And so if I'm using this in an acute setting, and I'm trying to get somebody to want to use this long term, then I need to be have it work. Um, some people really love a neti pot and if they've been using it for years, I'm not going to stop them from using it. But if they've never used something before, that's this sort of high volume, low pressure, um, uh, delivery mechanism is to me very helpful. And again, that's sort of in my practice. Um, but I, the way that I describe it is there's not a lot of downside to it. Um, and it does have some pretty good data that it can help. I think be, since we're going to be talking about a lot of nasal sprays, um, maybe you can tell us how you use the saline nasal spray and then how that you would instruct the patient to use the oxymetazolin, which is like the, the topical decongestant. Um, so, in, so in terms of just the saline spray, I kind of tell people they can they can use it almost as much as they want. It's, it's salt water. You know, there's no sort of overdosing on salt water. Um, it will help with thinning things out. I really like it for folks that have a history of, uh, epistaxis, especially if I'm putting them on a nasal steroid. Um, so I really want them to use it. I tell them, you know, every three hours while you're awake, but you really can't overuse it. That one's almost more of a maintenance. The The value of using it in the middle of an acute infection uh, may be less helpful, but it doesn't hurt. The oxymetazolam, um, I will have people use twice a day, you know, kind of almost no matter what for three days. Um, they can stretch it to four. <laughs> um, because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to thin out the lining so that the so that the sinus irrigation that I use afterwards will get in all those, all those places. So I want them to spray the oxymetazolam, wait five minutes, and then I want them to use the, the nasal irrigation. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Yes. And I feel like what I have a weird and unaccountable love for intranasal fluticasone for some reason for almost any setting. Is that something that you advise patients or is the evidence so scant for... So I love intranasal fluticasone for allergy and for any sort of sinus congestion um, sort of that's on the, on the chronic edge. Uh, you know, when we start talking, you know, less than four weeks acute, greater than 12 weeks chronic. When we're talking chronic, I do love it. Um, there is limited data, and I, I usually will um, refer folks to the um, Academy of Otolaryngology guidelines. I think the most recent one was like 2015. There is some limited data that it can help in an acute setting. The big 
challenge is it usually takes 15 days, um, yeah. which hopefully they'd be better. They're usually, <laughs> right. You're yep. usually getting better by then. Um, but there is certainly a, a role for it. I tend to not use it in my practice unless I'm doing a chronic, but also remember the people coming to me are usually having chronic issues, right. but I love it for chronic. Do you do you ever go to like the top, um, the intranasal antihistamines or intranasal ipratropium during like an acute? If this this Mister Linus uh, Linus came to you, would you ever go go to one of those? If he says, "Oh, I hate the oxymetazoline," and you had to go to something else for acute, um, I might use a nasal steroid with the caveat that it's um, probably going to take a little bit of time to work. Yeah, unless I had a strong uh, feeling that this was going to be an allergy mediated. Um, process the um, intranasal antihistamine is probably not super helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I always tell people, you know, we we can try it. I try to try one thing before I try the next thing. In an acute setting, usually they've gotten better before we've tried the next thing. Um, Ipatropium is actually a, a great medicine that um, I use a lot, but I usually use it as a second line. Mm-hmm. Um, it's awesome for vasomotor rhinitis, um, and so folks that get the runny nose when they eat or when they're outside running or when they're cold. Um, it works really, really well for that. Um, I will try both on occasion with folks, um, but it's not usually my first line. It's usually my second line. But yeah, I'll absolutely use it. And that one you can use like every six hours. Um, and so some people like it just because they can use it more frequently. I have two more nasal spray questions that I promise we can move on from this case. So I <laughs> I love nasal sprays. This is my bread and butter. <laughs> So the first, just so we can say that out loud and be explicit about it, why why do we limit the oxymetazolam use? Why are we telling patients three to four days? Why can't they just use it forever? Because it feels so so good. It does, it does, and it's it's because your body relies on the ability to have constriction with the sympathetic tone, and so when you spray um, the oxymetazolam, it it causes your nose to quote unquote become addicted to it, so it can no longer decongest without it, um, and so your normal sympathetic responses kind of go away. And when you spray the oxymetazolam, it fixes it for a little while and then it wears off um, and they can no longer constrict any other way. Um, and it's it's not easy to get people off of it. Um, we actually almost treat it like quitting smoking in some cases in terms of getting them to, to quit. It's hard. It's right. awful. <laughs> it's yeah, awful. it is. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> I wonder. If- oh, and say the name because it's the best part about. I mean, it's why you go into it's that neuralgia parasitic are the two reasons you go into medicine, and so you can say stuff like this. So. <laughs> rhinitis medicamentosus. I always have to like Google yeah. it to make sure I get all the syllables in when I put it in my note. <laughs> it's such a great term. I think. And then the second. Oh, oh yeah, go the second nasal spray question, and I, I promise we're done with this topic, at least until the next part of the case. Do you give any instructions for positioning? Like, do you tell patients explicitly go up the nose, go back towards the throat? Like, how do you tell patients to actually squirt the stuff into their face? Sniff as hard so, as you can. <laughs> no, don't do that. Um, so for oxymetazolam and nasal saline, I don't usually. I do spend some time with the intranasal steroids, and that's mainly because um, those are the ones that if you use it incorrectly, you can cause some epistaxis. And now I've either not benefited them at all or I've changed you know, I've traded one problem for another. Um, so what I will tell them, and I'll actually use the otoscope um, uh, little speculum <laughs> to demonstrate it, but I tell them to aim straight back and slightly out to their cheek. And I'll I'll demonstrate it on me with a, with a plastic speculum, and then I'll have them uh, replicate it themselves. Um, and then I'll 
position their hand, but it's you know really straight back and they should almost feel it on that inferior turbinate. If they, if you see them um, push it in and their their uh, nasal ala is flaring out because they've <laughs> pushed it so far in, then they've not gone far enough back. So it's really mostly back. And my, I'm trying to get on that inferior turbinate. And my bad joke about the uh, the sniff as hard as you can. I've I, I know that they some of the instructions say like sniff gently because if you sniff really hard, it like brings it into the posterior pharynx and like just totally misses the mark. Is that is important? Like, is that really a thing? Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. Um, in terms of whether anybody's tested it, um. Many people don't like the taste or the feeling of it. And so I tend to not have them sniff hard because they just don't like the way it feels or smells. Um, If you get it on the front of your nose, the nasal mucoral or the psilomucoral process will push it to the back. Okay. Um, And so it's not so- It's going to get there anyway. Necessary. It's going to get there. I mean, that's- (laughs) If you put a little bit of saccharin in the front of your nose, you'll eventually taste it in the back. Like it works. Um, And so I'm not as worried about people getting it to the back, but- they tend not to like it if it gags them or tastes bad. So it sounds like the main the main things we're doing for the this this acute uh, rhinosinusitis is saline and a topical decongestant, and then there's not really uh, systemic pill medications that are part of your first line. Not not typically. I think people talk about whether a decongestant would be helpful. Um, you know, certainly with the risk benefit of whether it's worked for them before, whether they can, you know, tolerate something like a pseudoephedrine, um, you know, but all of it is symptomatic treatment. So okay. um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a cure for it. It kind of has to write itself out. All right. Paul, do you want to, should we go on with the case? And Yep. Great. So we treat Mr. Linus um, conservatively. We treat him for a, a presumed viral sinusitis or rhinosinusitis, I should say. And then he comes back five days later um, slightly irritated because he's feeling much worse. Um, on exam, the mucus is thicker. It looks sort of just grosser and is not as clear as it was before. And it's now a light yellow color. Um, if you look at his posterior pharynx, it just looks more irritated and inflamed. So now it sounds like we're crossing possibly into the land of the bacterial rhinosinusitis. And so I, I'm wondering if you could talk us through sort of what your approach is. Does, well, I guess, first of all, tell us if how the patient typically looks different with an acute bacterial infection as opposed to an acute viral infection. And I guess we can take it from there. Sure. And so um, I think a lot of it goes down to that nasal exam. And some of it goes, will also be on the history. You know, the the things that are very telling for me are, um, I have this like sour smell. Um, People actually describe that something smells bad or they have a bad taste even sometimes. Um, and then when you, and it, you know, they'll blow their nose, they, they will put it in a tissue and bring it to me. I don't know if they do that <laughs> to you guys or not, Absolutely. Um, but that's very yep. common. Um, but it, you know, it, you know, it's more of a sort of yellowy purulent look to it. Um, and then when you look in their nose, again, that, that middle meatus between the middle turbinate and the outflow of the maxillary sinus, you'll, you'll see this like thick purulent goo. Um, they are usually more uncomfortable. And that story of maybe I was getting a little bit better and then I got worse again, or it's been going on for like 10 days. Um, those are the two things that I kind of look for. Um, again, I don't do a lot of tapping on faces. Um, if they describe specifically a certain spot, that's helpful maybe, um, but it doesn't change my management. 
I know the Odo HNS, is that is that the preferred term uh, for these that's guidelines? That's what I use. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's cool. We, I want to be- I don't know if that's the preferred term, but that's what I use. Look, I mean, you're talking to two two guys that went into internal medicine. So anytime we can look cool, uh, <laughs> it's rare. So the Odo HNS guidelines, uh, they, they, they mentioned this 10-day cutoff, this magic 10-day cutoff or, or the double sickening, which you already mentioned- do you recommend that our audience go by that? Like if they're seeing someone before 10 days and unless there's clearly double sickening already that they, they kind of press on with this, they give them the first line stuff and they don't talk about antibiotics until they failed that or had this double sickening. I, I do. And part of it is because, you know, we, we know that a component of folks who have bacterial sinusitis are actually going to get better even without antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that a lot of these are viral that are get better on their own. Um, and so if you can minimize the number of people that are exposed to antibiotics, that's always a good thing, right? Um, and more than that, if they are going to have a chronic sinus sort of pathway, um, I kind of need to know how many times they really need to be treated and how many times they've just been treated because that's what was easiest, if that makes sense. Because in the back of my head, again, I'm always thinking about what what pushes us to surgery. If somebody has been on antibiotics four times in a year, I'm like, "Mm, maybe that's somebody that might benefit from surgery for acute recurrent sinusitis. Um, If somebody has been on antibiotics because every time they go in and they've been sick for three days, they get another course of antibiotics that sort of skews it a little bit. Um, So those are the reasons that I I do. I tend to not do a lot of antibiotics first line. Um, I will often give people a prescription and say, fill it if you're not better in five days. Or I'll have them call me and I'll put it in at that point. <laughs> and what is, so let's just say like we are just rabid about stewardship and we're like, just walk it off champ, um, rub some dirt on it. And just, and we don't, we just assume that like, it'll go away eventually. Like what's the worst that could happen to, to poor Mr. Linus if we just decide not to treat? What can go, what can go south if we don't treat the bacterial sinusitis? Yeah. So, so it's, yes, there are absolute risks that, um, uh, for untreated bacterial sinusitis. So we always talk about the orbital risks. And if you want any um, first year ENT intern to sort of cringe, ask them about the Chandler classifications, which are sort of the orbital complications that we talk about. And, you know, it can go from preceptal cellulitis to an orbital cellulitis to an abscess, even up to cavernous sinus thrombosis. And so those aren't things you want to mess around with, right? Um, also, you know, an abscess anywhere in the sinuses can progress. Um, I always tell people sinus surgery is um, high value real estate um, because it's near the brain. Um, So you absolutely can get uh, meningeal impact. You can get um, uh, interparenchymal abscesses. Um, You can get uh, Potts puffy tumor. When's the last time you heard that one? (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard of that one. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, So that is a, that was a potential rare complication. I've seen it all of once. um, And so it's certainly not something common, but it's a, um, uh, a complication from a frontal sinusitis that causes an osteomyelitis that sort of breaks through the frontal sinus bone and creates this big puffy tumor literally on their forehead. Um, And so none of these are things that you want to completely ignore in our I hope you've never seen that. <laughs> I, I have seen it once. Paul looks incredulous. <laughs> how how quickly does that happen? Like, you're it, just like it's not it's not fast. It's not just fast. Do a saline rinse. Don't worry about it. And they come back to your office two weeks later with like this fungating mask coming out of their forehead. Like I just good God. <laughs> it's not it's it's not a common complication by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but yeah, so you don't want to completely ignore them. And that I think that's um, that's part of it is that this requires a relationship with the patient. They have to 
trust what you're telling them and they have to trust that they can get back with you if things get worse. Um, and I will often, again, I'll, you know, I'll have them call me in a week. I'll call them in a week and see how they're doing um, and see if we need to, to add an antibiotic. Or again, I will give them an antibiotic to fill in five days or something like that. Um, so it's not something that, you know, everybody should rub dirt on it and walk off. Okay. But a lot more people can rub dirt on it and walk off probably than we're currently treating. How's and, that? And we're probably talking about uh, the average risk patient, not like uncontrolled uh, immunocompromised condition, like they're get, like, actively getting chemotherapy or something like that. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. And immunocompromised, you would not you know, consider by any stretch an otherwise healthy person um, who gets a couple of sinus infections, quote unquote, a year. And from I, since I want to keep saying it, the Odo HNS guidelines mention that you can you now have the option of five to ten days of either a mox or a mox clav, and it seems like it's dealer's choice how long you continue it. Can you tell us how do you talk to patients about that? What would you recommend we do? Um, so so it does talk a little bit about a mox clav whether you you know you would use it in certain patients over sixty five um, patients that have failed uh, moxicillin first line already, some of those kinds of things. Um, there's a, you know, more severe symptoms, maybe consider a moxclav versus a moxicillin. Um, I am more likely to do a 10-day. Um, and part of that is because often at the end of it, I'm going to get a CT scan to see what what their underlying uh, uh, bony structure is. Um, but again, somebody coming to me has probably had a couple of these before you've seen them for the first time. Yeah. I'm more likely to do 10. Um, I think it's very appropriate to do this 5 to 10, and 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 your patient population may be more comfortable with one or the other. Um, I mean, for the same reason that we chose 5 because we've got 5 fingers and 10 because we've got, you know, two hands yeah. and seven days in a week, um, you know, there's, there's a bit of variability, but I'm more likely to do 10 for the reasons that I described. Paul Sachs, uh, a, a, fr a friend of ours from Podcast World, uh, is an infectious diseases doctor who wrote probably one of the funniest pieces of medical writing I've ever read about the antibiotic. And he said, it has to be a multiple of five or seven. And if you want to freak people out, you got to do like Take a nine-day course of this. Yeah, an 11-day like, <laughs> course, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's okay. So we're going to do five to 10 days. And to, re to remind the audience, uh, if people are making it to Dink, it's because they probably had this recurrent acute sinusitis like multiple times. It's not their first rodeo. If you're seeing a patient that otherwise looks totally healthy, but they meet the 10-day criteria or double sickening, five to 10 days, you... You, you're not recommending we get CT scans on all those folks. No, okay. no, 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 no. To be very clear, not at all. And and uh, I don't. Um, the the OtoHNS guidelines say this, and I tell this to you know my primary care folks when they call with recommendations. I generally prefer people don't get really Im any imaging. Um, you know, use yeah. the history, use your physical exam. Um, but an acute sinusitis on a CT scan is going to look terrible, but it's not going to tell me whether the person needs surgery or not. It always looks terrible. I see. So you want to see what it looks like in the like once they've cooled off. In their best state. Yeah. yeah. I tell people, I, I, I want to see your CT scan on your best day. Okay. So for this particular case, um, let, let's say we treat Mr. Linus appropriately and he comes back with persistence of symptoms. So, or actually, why don't I say it a different way? Because I feel like there's a little bit of a differentiation here. Let's say the symptoms failed to improve. I think that's an, a different way to say it. What would you extend the course? Would you try a different antibiotic? What is what is your approach for someone who does not um, respond at all to your initial antimicrobial therapy? So, so you've done a, a, a amoxicillin or a moxclavulinate for ten days, and he comes back and he says, "I'm not any better." Is that yep. 
Okay. Um, and he's uh, otherwise doing okay. Like, you know, his eye isn't swollen. He doesn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Right. It, it, no we don't have red flags. Nothing. Okay. No, no. Um, he's just not getting a whole lot better. Um, so second line, um, I will often use doxycycline. Um, and there's some pretty good data um, for doxycycline. So uh, seven years ago, I would have said, you know, a, a respiratory fluoroquinolone. Um, and I use those a lot. Um, and I have pretty much changed my practice to doxycycline twice a day because it has anti-inflammatory too. Um, and I will, for those patients, they're usually going to have a doxycycline plus or minus a prednisone burst. Um, and then see where they land. And at the end of that, I will get a CT scan um, because now I've maximally treated them. If I'm not getting better, I need to know why. The prednisone, can you t- can you talk a little bit more about, so that's that's for people who have failed f- with an acute rhinosinusitis. They fail the first line. They're getting antibiotics at, and, and they may, you may give steroids along with the second time. I, I sort of missed that. But, and uh, uh, in my defense to the audience, they're not on Zoom with us, Paul, a black cat walked by as she was giving the answer. <laughs> it, it's very it's distracting. Um, yes. So, and, and again, I have to sort of parse out my patient population. But yes, if somebody has had a, a course of a first line antibiotic and they have not gotten better, um, I will, as an your nose and throat doctor, I love steroids. Um, and I think that's pretty universal, sure. <laughs> universal within, within ENT. Um, I haven't done a survey, but you know, we, we tend to love steroids. Um, I will use uh, doxycycline plus or minus a, a prednisone. Um, and part of it is because doxycycline does have some great anti-inflammatory um, responses, but it takes a little bit longer. Um, and a prednisone, you know, one week burst will sort of give them that week. And then I'm going to do like a 14 day or 21 day course of the doxycycline. And then I'm going to okay. get a CT scan because I want to know what the underlying issue is. So you might do something like a 40 milligrams for five to seven days or a 40 and then you step it down or? Correct. Yeah. And and I'll, I'll do actually 50, but that's because that, it comes. It comes in a easier. 50. Okay. Brilliant. No, no. These are all tips that we need to know. This is great. Um, but you can do a 40. You can do 60. Yeah, yeah it's steroids, right? Obviously. Obviously. Yeah. yeah, that's the worst that could happen. Um, but other other than sort of the addition of the steroids, is there any change to the symptomatic support that you offer? So you're giving the antimicrobial, you're giving steroids. Do you change anything up in terms of um, intranasal like do you is now would you pull out the epitropium? Is there anything else that you would sort of add or do differently? Yeah, I might like I might pull out the epitropium if I didn't start them on a nasal steroid initially. Um, you know, at this point now we're well into 15 days. So I, I certainly would because I wouldn't want them on the axometazolam for that long. Um, again, it's the underlying inflammation that I'm trying to address. Um, but that's, you know, those kinds of, you know, I'm trying to address inflammation. I'm trying to keep um uh the, the snot balls from, from backing up and causing a lovely Petri dish. Those are the things that I'm trying to make better. Um, and so absolutely the irrigations, absolutely consider a nasal steroid if you haven't already done it. Um, I do tell patients and they always laugh at me because of course they would never do it, but you know, don't do the steroid and or the nasal steroid and then do your sinus rinse because you just rinsed it all out. Do it the other way around. Um, Versus the oxymetazolam that I told them to do first, right? So it, it is a little confusing if you're not really clear with them. Um, I might try an epitropium. I generally, um, I, I generally use epitropium though for the vasomotor rhinitis folks or the people who have failed uh, nasal steroid first. Okay. 
How's that for a wishy-washy answer? <laughs> well, it's, you know, I, I would say, and in, in Paul, let, let, I'll, I'll confess, and Paul, you let me know if you do the same thing. I, I think p- some patients are just pill people. And so I will, I, I've given antihistamines. I've given, like, patients or patients ask me for benzonitate. Uh, and uh, what else? They ask me if they can take guifenesin, like uh, guifenesin with or without dextromethorphan. And I'm like, Sure, why not? I mean, this 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 comes up, and and people are using it. I mean, the the over the counter cough and cold supplement industry is just like, is it's uh, evidence is sparse, and it's just they're killing it. I have to imagine they're killing it. Yeah, and and that's a, a, often a conversation I'll have with people. Do you feel like it's working for you? Okay, then I'm okay with it as long as it's not causing other issues. And other times they're like, I'm trying this, I'm trying this, it's not working. Let's stop that because it's not not doing anything. Right. Um, So, but again, that goes back to just having these conversations with folks and, and folks that have chronic sinus challenges are, they're, they're in a lot. I mean, there's a heavy disease burden um, and every study will say how much, how, how much the work burden is and the cost of care and all of that. And so they end up being patients that you need to kind of spend some time with and figure out what's really bothering them. Right. Yeah. A lot of them will complain that they're, they're coughing or they, they just can't breathe and it's, it, it affects their sleep, which is really a, a bad thing, obviously. Yeah. Vicious cycle. Yeah. Exactly. This feels like just an excellent time to transition into our next case who has just an all timer name. Um, so let's, let's, <laughs> let's talk about Ethel Moyd. Um, she is. <laughs> I love this one strong, so much, Paul. Strong work, Dr. Um, Beth Garbatelli. Ethel Moyd is a 54 year old female who presents with months of dull face pain and an ongoing runny nose that she feels has been getting worse. She's been trying to manage her symptoms with NSAIDs for the dull pain, and she's been trying her neti pot. She reports that she has recurrent postnasal drip and says she's had times in the past where she's had, quote, bad sinus infections. Um, her past medical history is significant for eczema and seasonal allergies. She does not note any visual changes at all. On exam, she has a little bit of a deviated septum, and on inspection of the nasal passages, she has bilateral turbinate enlargement with mucopurulent drainage. Um, she also has mild inflammation in the posterior pharynx with copious mucus. Um, just great descriptors all around. <laughs> she also, um, even though we're not big fans of it, let's just say we paddled her face, and she does have some tenderness to percussion over the maxillary and frontal sinuses, but no periorbital edema or nothing to suggest uh, an acute scary process on top of all of this. So it, it sounds like we're sort of, we're transitioning to the land of chronic rhinosinusitis. Can you tell us if this is consistent with most presentations or if not, where does it vary and what can we expect to see with that specific no, concern? That's, that's pretty classic. And, and the, the age range, the sort of it's ongoing, um, you know, we've tried these things. I, I really love when they come in having already tried, neti pots or nasal irrigation, because that means that that we've already uh, sort of established the symptomatic therapy. Um, and I tell people my, my chronic sinus patients are really going to be on some sort of nasal irrigation lifelong, even whether we do surgery or not, they're going to be on it lifelong. Um, and so, yeah, she's, she's a pretty classic. I'm always, you know, deviated septum. I don't really worry necessarily that that's going to be a sign that they have more likely or less likely to have sinus problems. Um, it may make it less access for me on a surgical field, um, but it's usually a deviated septum problem is going to be more like a unilateral obstruction. Um, not always, certainly, but I, I don't worry this because somebody has a deviated septum, they're more likely to have a sinus problem. Um, certainly not one that you can see from the front. Um, so yeah, it, to me, that's a very classic presentation. And again, it's you know greater than 12 weeks. And so we're now in that chronic period. And now we need to figure out kind of what else is going on. 
And yeah, and to point out in the, I, I noticed in the Odo HNS guidelines that they, in between four and 12 weeks, they leave it up to the clinician to decide if patient is in chronic land or acute land. Yeah, it's the, the sub, subacute kind of gray zone. Yeah, sure. If you wanted to to start doing to to doing one or the other, what is there is there many reasons why someone gets into this chronic rhinosinusitis land? What is the believed you know pathophysiology or the the etiology of of all this? There's lots of them. So they talk, uh, you know, chronic rhinosinusitis with or without polyps seems to be a different disease. Um, as soon as you start asking me what the level of the IL-5 or 4 is, I'm way out of my league for telling you which one is which. Um, but they do seem to be different processes. Um, folks who have sort of this ongoing chronic rhinosinusitis, they will often have this underlying allergy. And so we try to manage the underlying allergy because again, it's an inflammation process. Um, but there are lots of reasons. It could be um, aspirin, exacerbated respiratory disease. Um, and a 54-year-old, probably not CF, but certainly in a 20-year-old, you might want to consider it if they've got chronic problems. If you see a teenager and they've got polyps, it's something to think about. Um, so there's a, the etiology is not small in terms of what the underlying issue is, but there's usually some sort of inflammatory process going on. And are there, are there specific criteria sort of needed to make the diagnosis? Is this someone that we would send off for imaging? How do we, how do I get to feel confident in the diagnosis as a, just a, a mediocre internist, let's say? <laughs> Absolutely not a mediocre internist. So yes, there are specific, um, uh, uh, diagnostic criteria. And so I'll read them off so I don't miss any of them. So for chronic rhinosinusitis, it's 12 weeks or longer with two of the following, mucopurulent drainage, nasal obstruction, facial pain or facial pressurefulness, decreased smell. So any one of those two, and some evidence of inflammation documented by purulent drainage seen in that middle meatus. So again, looking in, in the nose with your um, otoscope to see up in that, that uh, back behind the middle turbinate polyps. Um, so if you haven't seen polyps before, there's some great pictures, both in the Odo HNS guidelines, as well as there's a, a New England Journal um, uh, article that has uh, chronic rhinic sinusitis with polyps. And I think oh, yeah, if you haven't amazing. seen polyps before, yeah, I, you just you, you, you just need to see them once. They look like white grapes is what I tell people, or yellow white grapes, um, or radiographic imaging. So you need to see some inflammatory evidence um, in any one of those. And so that's sort of the classic diagnostic criteria. Yeah, that article, the the pictures, the diagrams to we're talking about turbinates and meati, the meatus and all this stuff. That that article has really great figures in it, and both cartoon figures and uh, actual pictures. Um, so, Paul, what are we are we in treatment territory here now? So we've it sounds like we really just need to. They have nasal symptoms. They might have pain or pressure in the face. They might have some smell issues, and then we just have to either look with our otoscope or with an image uh, to diagnose this. So what's what's next, Paul? Yeah, no, I, you've sold me on the diagnosis. So I guess now, what what do we do for poor Ethel Moyd? Again, a name I cannot get enough of. <laughs> so, so what do you do or what do you want me to do? I guess... <laughs> Yeah, maybe well, both. Because she's recommend. one I would consider for you know a workup to see if it if if surgery would be indicated, um, and so that's that's kind of where we start talking about what's the the right time to do a consultation. You know, certainly you want to try to treat her um, symptoms if she hasn't been on a course of an antibiotic. Um, it's worth doing, but that's where I start um, having people like the folks that refer to me. I 
I tell them, you know, do this and then I'll get a CT scan kind of thing. And I think that's probably going to be pretty practice uh, specific. Um, in my case, I, d- I don't want to get two CT scans. So I just want to get the one where I know what condition they were in when they got it. Um, other places won't see them unless they have a CT scan. So I think that's going to be very practice dependent. Um, but, you know, a CT um, axillofacial without contrast is kind of our, our go-to for imaging. Um, please don't get a waters view. I don't know what to do with it. Um, I don't know if anybody is still getting them, but every now and then I'll get a, uh, every now and then I will get a sinus series waters view. And I just, good news is I don't know how to order that. So you'll save for my conference. (laughs) Every now and then I'll get a film of them. I'm like, I I don't know what to do with that. Um, but that's kind of where, where we are next. Um, MRIs are not really helpful. Um, they overcall things. And so, yeah, CT maxillofacial without contrast is kind of our next step. And the, really the question is, do you do it before you send them to ET or ENT or do you wait for ENT to do it? Well, for this patient, bef- oh, go ahead, Paul. I was going to, so ideally before this patient would get to you though, she would have perhaps failed a course of antibiotic therapy. She would be on um, chronic sinus irrigation is what I'm hearing. And then we'd also, of course, be adding on some of the adjunctive treatments too. So this is someone for whom it sounds like you would recommend the intranasal steroids. Correct. And yeah. possibly and if you have, hypertropium. Yeah. And if we haven't done some allergy testing, um, you know, al- an allergy workup would be appropriate. Um, and, and if none of those make things better, then that's absolutely an appropriate patient to, to, uh, send. Um, I will tell you that I will also see them before they have the allergy workup because sometimes that's how they get to me and then we'll do the allergy workup. Um, but yeah, if you wanted to do the complete workup, it would be, uh, you know, make sure we've tried antibiotic therapy, make sure we've maximized the sinus irrigation. Um, we've looked for underlying, uh, allergy. Um, we've considered if, you know, they get exacerbations with aspirin or NSAIDs and are looking for like an AERD kind of process. Um, and then, yeah, it's absolutely the the time to call an ENT. Because with this person, she has a history of eczema and seasonal allergies. So maybe she'll, she'll in my experience, she would be on loratadine or fexofenadine, fexofenadine uh, one of those, one of those medications. Yeah. And uh, a nasal steroid. And, and a nasal you know, steroid. And, and treated it. Yeah. Yes. And hopefully, so we don't know yet if it's allergic or infectious necessarily, but she theoretically failed infectious treatment. And do any of these patients, is there any mixing up like these patients you mentioned earlier in, um, when we were speaking about the gustatory, like, you know, people that get the runny nose when it's cold, th- those people, is that more of like a nuisance thing? Like this is a different class of patient we're talking about here, the vasomotor versus the allergic versus the infectious. Well, it's the way they describe their symptoms, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I, I will ask people, you know, cause they'll come into my clinic and they'll say, I have sinus problems, or I, I have, I've got the sinus is really what they say. Um, and so tell me what that means to you. Does it mean I get a runny nose? Okay, when does that happen? Um, does it happen when you eat? Does it happen when you run um, or exercise or in the cold? Um, does it happen every spring? Um, and so, you know, that's where you start digging into those. Um, vasomotor rhinitis and sinusitis or, or rhinosinusitis are going to be pretty distinct etiologies. I mean, you can certainly have both. Um, but one of them is very much a kind of, as you said, it, it's a nuisance. Um, and the other one, we may be able to treat with, uh, with some surgical intervention. I don't know if I answered your question. No, that, that definitely answers the question. It, it, it sounds, so it sounds like for chronic rhinosinusitis, as long as the people have, have someone's made given it a, the good old college try, 
they an ENT consult is absolutely warranted and check your local check your local practice patterns for whether or not you need to get the sinus CT but make sure if you're the primary care doctor my main take home uh, which I thought was a great point is try to get their sinuses in the best condition possible before you send them to you know before you send them to get the CT because if they're already having an obvious major issue then it's not really uh, it's not going to be that informative. Yeah, it won't, it won't tell me what kind of surgery would help them Okay, if they're acutely sick. So one failure I've had along those lines, and I'm sorry to make you revisit this, is I feel like I have talked exactly one patient into saline rinses. Like I feel like just sinus irrigation is a hard sell in general, and I just I don't, I don't feel like I could do a good job of explaining it or telling patients exactly how it works or how to perform it. Would you mind sort of going through the specific spiel for, for sinus irrigation, because I just, I feel like I've never been able to talk anyone successfully into it. They're like, well, never mind. I'll just suffer through it. Which is, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Not at all. Actually, that's one of my favorites. So, so I have a whole handout. Um, I have, you know, uh, demonstration models. Um, so the, the, the things I tell people is that one, I know that folks who have sinus issues are going to have underlying inflammation and thick snot. And that's what's causing a lot of their symptoms. That's what's causing part of their congestion. That's what's causing causing that post-nasal drip. And so by putting saline water in their nose, I'm thinning out the snot, letting it go to the back of their nose. I tell them, you know, you make a half a liter of snot a day and you don't feel it if it's thin because you're swallowing it. But if it's thick, that's when you feel it. Um, so I tell them that by putting the saline rinses in their nose, they're going to thin out the snot. So it's not going to bother them as much in the post-nasal drip standpoint. Um, it's going to sort of get all the globs out. And so you've got less of the obstruction phenomenon. And by helping that mucociliary clearance, you're clearing out the things that are irritating the nose and causing inflammation. And so that's why it works. Um, and so I have a whole handout that just talks about why it works. And then the things that people don't like is that it either makes them feel like they're gagging or it burns. And so then I give them specific tips. And so um, in terms of the burning, usually it is because the water is either too hot, too cold, or you don't have enough salt in it. Um, and so, you know, they come in little packs generally, although if you Google, people can make their own at home, but you're going to want to put the distilled water, don't use tap water or well water, um, in, in the bottle and you want it to be baby bottle temperature. So 10, 15 seconds in the microwave, or they can boil tap water and let it cool. Either one. Then you add the salt packet or the um, salt mixture that they've made at home and they need to shake it up really, really well. Because if all the salt's at the bottom, it's going to burn once it gets to the, to the less, um, the hypotonic portion of it. Um, so that fixes usually the burning if it's baby bottle temperature and the salt is really well mixed in. The gagging sensation that people don't like is um, fixed by bending over. I tell them, you know, you really want to be bent over so that you're parallel to the floor. I tell them the first couple of times, do it over a bathtub if you have a bathtub or over the sink. And you, I tell them, you're going to be amazed at how much snot comes out. It'll be just really cool. Um, it works for kids, too, because they get excited about having snot come out of their nose. Um, and you're going to gently go up one side. It's not a pressure washer. You're going to go up one side and you're going to watch it come out the other. If you feel like it's going down the back of your throat, bend over farther. If you still feel like it's going down the back of your throat, um, they can open their mouth, but they can also make the k -k sound because that'll close the back of their palate. Um, and with that description and a please try it at least three times before you tell me you absolutely can't do it, I can get most people to do it. Um, I can get kids to do it. There's YouTube videos. You can Google them. Um, I, the youngest kid I've been able to consistently get to do it is four, but it, it just takes some talking and those tricks will usually work. Uh, that's, I love, I, I, for me hearing that sort of 
that sort of language that we can use and these these kind of tips is just invaluable because we have these conversations every day, especially around this time of year. So this is just fantastic. And uh, we'll, tr- we'll make every effort to uh, get some of these handouts that you're talking about and videos curated for, for our audience to, to include in the show notes. Yeah, I'll, I'll find there's a, uh, one of the handouts I have actually has a, a YouTube video from a, a couple of ENT physicians that they actually do it on screen. Oh, yeah, that's great. Paul, I think we have uh, one piece of a case left here. Did you want to do the honors? I feel like it's, I mean, I think you just want to do this one because of the name, which <laughs> I heard that you so, came up with this name, by the way, that's, uh, which I can never remember what's the difference between libel and slander, but it's, it's one of those. <laughs> um, but so let's, let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about snotty Pippins. Um, I, who's a 32 year old male. He's presenting with a month long, uh, episode of sneezing, runny nose. He's having itchy and red watery eyes and he just feels kind of tired he just recently moved to this part of the country, um, which has a lot of plants and relatively dry weather. He moved in with his partner who owns a cat, uh, if that's helpful history. The transition has been difficult, so he's recently prescribed an SSRI. He's also been using over-the-counter nasal sprays, um, although he's not really sure which ones. He just kind of picks up like the sinus one and it's been squirting up his nose. And he doesn't think that it's actually been all that helpful at this point. Maybe it helped initially. On exam, the posterior pharynx shows cobblestoning. He's got this post-nasal drip of clear mucus. His nares and nasal passages are inflamed and his turbinates are bilaterally slightly enlarged. His sinuses are not tender if we choose to bang on them. And there is bilateral conjunctival injection and maybe some mild infraorbital edema. So I, it sounds like we're, we're trying to sort of sell you on a patient who's having possibly um, allergic rhinitis. Um, so I wonder if you wouldn't tell us sort of your initial thoughts on this patient, how your workup and sort of management would begin. Sure. Yeah. So, so the patient does have all the classic hallmarks of a of a allergic rhinitis. Um, but the physical exam findings that clear rhinorrhea, the sneezy. I tell people if it's itchy, scratchy, sneezy, it's allergy to me, unless proven otherwise. Um, I need to prove that it's not allergy before I start looking for other reasons. Um, so itchy, scratchy, sneezy. Um, the timeline, and oh, by the way, we've moved and we're around a cat, and we perhaps haven't been around a cat before. Um, so my first just in questioning, I, I do want them to tell me what over-the-counter they're on and, you know, even the brand, na- brand name, and I will Google it and figure out whether it has oxymetazolam in it or not, because a lot of them do, and it's just not really clear that they do, um, because that's going to send me down a slightly different path if we've got more of a, a, a overuse of oxymetazolam versus an allergy, and maybe you have both. Um, so I would absolutely get some sort of allergy testing. I would absolutely put them on a nasal steroid if they have not already been on a nasal steroid. And if they have been on a nasal steroid, I'm going to make sure they're using it correctly and consider adding a nasal antihistamine. Um, because a lot of times people haven't been even, you know, they've, I tell people, you know, the two most common errors I see are that they try to put it straight up their nose, in which case it gets caught in this little corner, like a booger catcher and just drips out. Um, (laughs) or they're aiming towards their septum, in which case it's just causing a nosebleed and it dries their nose out. Um, and so I usually will, um, have them at least try nasal steroid if they haven't already been on it for another four weeks. And if they have, and they're using it correctly, I'll add a, a, uh, antihistamine nasally. Um, and then, yeah, uh, uh, allergy testing. And then we kind of go from there. Um, other things that are, you know, the cobblestoning to me is very helpful, although you also get cobblestoning with reflux. Um, and people can complain of a, of a 
almost a post-nasal drip congestion sensation with bad reflux too. And so I may ask that in the history. Um, but yeah, the, the itchy, scratchy, sneezy is going to be allergy workup until I prove that it's not. I promised Stuart I would ask this. Uh, he he worried about uh, theoretical tachyphylaxis with someone taking nasal steroids all the time. And I think he has patients take intermittent breaks and maybe only take them a certain number of days a week. Is that something that you that you subscribe to? He he admitted that this is not something that he's ever been able to find a trial looking at. Sure. So I don't worry so much about tachyphylaxis um, typically. Now I do have patients that um, I know they're only allergic to grasses, and so I will have them only use it during the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that's why allergy testing is helpful because we can we can sort of guide the the use of it. I do want them to take it for a minimum of four to six weeks every day before I decide if it's working or not. I have not gotten to a point where I've told anybody to do it for five days and then not do it for two or something like that. I have switched nasal steroids and I don't have a great reason as to why sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I have taken people who've been on fluticasone and put them on budesonide. Um, there's no great reason why one should work better than the other, but I have switched people. Um, but often if I'm, if I'm not successful with just a nasal steroid, it's usually because they need something else in addition to. Um, so I haven't seen it in my practice, but again, I haven't been in the literature to ask, answer that question. I, I may have to take a look up on that one. <laughs> the the other thing that is constantly, we, we talked a little bit about systemic medications and uh, other than we talked a little bit, maybe antibiotics and steroids at some point for the acute rhinosinusitis, we haven't really talked about uh, oral medications much. And I know people are really for allergic rhinitis, people are commonly on these, like the newer antihistamines. What do you think about that? And their comparative efficacy with like intranasal steroids or the topical antihistamines? Sure. And so I, um, so intranasal steroids are in most guidelines and studies that I, that I look at are sort of first line. Um, and part of that is because there's two components of the allergy, right? So you've got the congestion part that's sort of the ongoing um, inflammation. And so the nasal steroids work at the point of that congestion. The itchy, sneezy, um, runny, runny, itchy eyes piece does seem to work better with the over-the-counter. Um, and so that's the way I will describe it to people. I will say, you know, I want you to be on the nasal steroid because that's going to help with that inflammation, that congestion feeling. But on the days that you're particularly sneezy or um, the runny is more problematic, then you can use the the um, antihistamines um, almost as a, almost like a breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Um, some people end up using it every day and that's okay because that's their majority symptom. But it's that, that early itchy sneezy is different than the longer term congestion. The other thing I'll do is I'll, I'll put them on a, an ocular antihistamine because that itchy eye, um, there is some data that the nasal steroid will help. Um, but the ocular antihistamine will really help. And, and a lot of times that's, that's the most irritating part of it for folks. And so I ask them what's the symptom that's bothering them the most. But I generally will use it as a, as a, in conjunction with a nasal steroid. There aren't a lot of people that I don't put on a nasal steroid. Um, certainly there are people that I don't, but it's not, it, it's the default unless I've got a good reason not to. So let's say Mr. Pippins comes back to us in, say, three months, and a lot of the allergic symptoms seem better. So like he's no longer sort of itchy, his eyes are okay, but he's just, his nose is just running, running, running. Is there, 
how does that change the differential for you? What other things should be considering for someone who has sort of a chronic rhinitis type picture? Sure. Um, so there's allergic and non-allergic rhinitis, right? Um, and the first line therapy for both allergic and non-allergic is a nasal steroid. When the nasal steroid doesn't work and you have allergy, then I look at other allergy medications we should put them on. If you've done allergy testing, they're negative to allergy, um, or at least to what you've tested, because it's the other thing I tell people is that you're negative to the things I've tested you for. It doesn't mean you have no allergy. It means you're negative to the things I've tested you for. Um, then we start looking at things like epitropium potentially. Um, that one is is what the first one I go to when it looks like more of a non-allergic rhinitis that hasn't responded to steroids. Um, and And when they respond to that and it looks and it then that works. There's um, some newer potential surgical interventions that might be considered. Um, so that's kind of where I draw the, you know, that's where I start heading if it's more of a non-allergic rhinitis that hasn't responded to steroids. But the first line for both allergic and non-allergic is still going to be that nasal steroid. Great. Well, Paul, I think we're I think we're coming to the end here. We've we've done acute rhinosinusitis, chronic rhinosinusitis. We talked about allergic, non-allergic. Any burning questions? I no, I, th I think we hit all the high points. I feel good. So, I think now would be a good time, Dink, if you could give the audience some take-home points. Maybe recap like your f your favorite things that you want them to remember, so that we can send you and your colleagues like better referrals. Absolutely. So, so the first piece is please reach out to your ENT colleagues because a lot of times we can give you some early guidance and there are some practice patterns that are going to be very specific to some areas. Um, inflammation, um, looking for the etiology of inflammation is going to be sort of the underlying piece for any of the versions of sinusitis, rhinosinusitis. Um, if you're dealing with acute, um, there are some very specific things you can look for, whether it's viral or bacterial. And when we start getting into that chronic greater than 12 weeks, don't be afraid to, you know, you've, we've done the, the nice saline regimen. We've tested for allergy. We've sort of maximized their sinuses. That's the point that it's probably a good time to send them to an ENT. Um, and then if you can get everybody to do their sinus irrigations, that would be great. Yeah, I'm excited to see. Paul and I are going to, Paul, we'll, we'll see. Let's let's have a contest who can get more people to uh, rinse out their sinuses. Sure, that feels ethical. And <laughs> good. Totally <laughs> uh, all right. I think we can end there. Thank you. <laughs> this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Yep, sure. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. And I wanted to thank our producers for this episode, the great Dr. Paul Williams, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, Kate Grant did the cover art for this. And to our social media team, always there, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And of course, we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you are doubtless hearing played uh, behind our voices. And we should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and good night. 
And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.